We've been preaching on community this whole past month. We've been doing the sermon series on community. And so before I say anything else, I want to say what I know we've been trying to say in a variety of services ever since we began opening up to live worship, which is that um, our community is everywhere now. Our community is right here this morning, but our community is also right now online. Right now online. So some of the community online are folks who normally would be here, but they're traveling or they're just home today. Others, though, may not have ever been to this building at all. And they're part of us. And so right now, before I forget, I want to say if you're part of that community out there online, I want you to know that we're your community here and that we're praying for you, we're pulling for you, and we're feeling your presence as we sit here as well. And for those of us in this building, know that that community out out there, that cloud of witnesses, they're praying for us, they're pulling for us, they're part of our community. Does that make sense? I think we all need to sort of get used to that fact that right now as you sit here, feel that community around you. And if you're home and watching, feel that community here because we're united together. So as I said, the, the theme is community. And we've been exploring in the sermons various aspects of what makes community vital and what keeps it together and uh, and, uh, what can energize it as we go forward, not only in our church, but just as as a nation even as well. And today I thought I'd stick with the topic of community, but maybe do something a little bit different and look at what happens with our differences. What happens when we have differences and conflict? in a community of which there is no community that does not have. So I thought we'd look at that. Uh, You know, we don't need to say it. We live in a really interesting time, right? These are contentious times, very trying, very hard for people. 15 months of the pandemic, and that's enough right there. And then it feels like there's political controversies that dog us at every step, and then we don't need to look very far uh, into, the, into the world at large to see more kinds of conflict and difference, it's easy to get discouraged. And so I thought today I would, I would pick two sets of scriptures from the New Testament, from the beginning days of the church. It's not that the Old Testament doesn't have things to say about community, it does. But I figured the New Testament made sense because that was the main task that the new church was about, which is how do we build community? How do we build community? And for us today, how do we build or rebuild community in what feels so often to be a fragmented time? So that's our topic for today. And I thought I'd start first with the words of Jesus uh, in uh, Matthew's gospel. And it's right there. It's uh, in your uh, bulletin today. So there's two scripture lessons. The first one, Matthew 5, 23 to 26. Listen here to the words of, of Jesus. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And then from the New Testament also, uh, from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, to the early church in Rome, chapter 14, Paul writes, Welcome anyone who is weak in faith, 
but not for disputes over opinions. One person believes that one may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. The one who eats must not despise the one who abstains, and the one who abstains must not pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on someone else's servant? Before his own master he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person considers one day more important than another, while another person considers all days alike. Let everyone be fully persuaded in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it for the Lord. Also, whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while whoever abstains, abstains for the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives for oneself, and no one dies for oneself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For this is why Christ died and came to life, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why then do you judge your brother? Or you, why do you look down on your sister? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Then let us no longer judge one another, but rather resolve never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of our brother. I know a man convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, it is unclean for someone who thinks it unclean. If your brother is being hurt by what you eat, your conduct is no longer in accord with love. Do not, because of your food, destroy him for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be reviled, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of food and drink, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by others. Let us then pursue what leads to peace and to building up one another. For the sake of food, do not destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to become a stumbling block by eating. Keep the faith you have between yourself and God. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. So in the first story, let me set the context there. Jesus is talking about a guy who's, or woman, doesn't matter, on the way to the temple in Jerusalem. And people would offer a sort of a gift offering at the altar there, and then they'd go on their way. And this was part of normal, everyday religious life at the time. And what Jesus is saying, of course, is if you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, Stop right there. Put your gift down. Go and settle first. And then he also goes on to say, and if you've got an adversary or an enemy, it says in some translations, and they've got something against you, settle it with them right there on the road while you walk together, lest something worse happen to you. You know, it, it's funny, as I was pondering that, that passage this week, I thought what's really something about it to me is that it's all about getting immediately personal with another human being. And it's all about right now. Do it now. Do it now. Do it in person. Get it done. Don't sit on it. Don't let it fester. Don't think, oh, I'll give my gift at the altar now and I'll get to that later on. No. Right away and in person. And, you know, it strikes me that that, that was good advice in Jesus' time, and I think it's even better advice now. You know, one of the things that's really important to know about the difference between the time of Jesus and pretty much all human history and our time is that throughout all human history, if you had a a difference or a conflict with somebody, chances were pretty good it was probably somebody you knew. 
In fact, that was pretty much the only way you were going to have a conflict. And it was going to be somebody that you not only knew, but you were going to bump into in the course of your daily life. So it makes total sense that you need to clean this up and you need to do it right away. Think of it, if you were a, a, a Christian living in the Middle Ages there, you didn't have a difference or a conflict with some guy living in a valley over there past the mountains. You were never going to meet him. You didn't have a problem with somebody living in a city a thousand miles away. You were never going to meet them. Everything was immediate and everything was personal. And I think that that's almost more necessary today than even in Jesus' time. You know, with the, with the past 15 months, you know, and we can talk about all the things that we've had to deal with, pandemic and politics and all the other, but I think the thing that really comes out for everybody is isolation. Isolation, you know, and the well of loneliness that can come up for so many people in the middle of all that. We live in a strange time where we can actually be legitimately angry with people that we've never met, that are thousands of miles away, and we never will meet, but they can totally tie us up into knots and reinforce that sense of isolation and loneliness. So how do we work with this, with this advice of Jesus? Well, one of the things that I think is important to note is that by closing the gap, by getting personal, I'm calling it getting connected, by connecting with our brother or our sister, one of the things we can do is we can find out what the disagreement actually is. Because maybe it's not a disagreement at all. Maybe it's actually just a misunderstanding. Oh, you thought that? Oh, no, I didn't mean that at all. Oh, I'm so sorry. It was actually that. You know, if you're tapping away on, online and reading something off of, you know, the website that you like to go read your political news from as opposed to that other website where the horrible people read their news from, if you're in the middle of all that, you don't get that moment to say, what, what did you mean there? Oh, this is what I meant. The human brain doesn't like unknowns. I mean, we like unknowns if it's a gift wrapped up with a bow, but pretty much otherwise, nah. We like things to be just the way we know them. And so it's particularly interesting to me that in this time when we're all wearing masks, I don't know about you, I'm betting, I'm betting you're right though with this, that one of the things that I most look forward to and gather information from, just me personally, is reading people's faces. I, I've been at a loss with not, without being able to read people's smiles. I feel like I don't know what I'm saying or how it's landing. I, I, I don't know whether anything I'm saying is getting through. I was in Whole Foods about uh, two or three weeks ago, and, uh, and we were all wearing masks. I was wearing a mask, and the checkout lady was wearing a mask, and I put my stuff on the conveyor belt, and I made a joke about something. And she looked at me, and she didn't laugh, and she put her head down and kept working. And it was interesting for me to follow what my brain was doing. My brain said, she didn't laugh at your joke. I don't think she likes me. I don't like her. It was all in there, right? It's a three-ring circus up there. The brain was just supplying me with information that I had no way of verifying and probably wasn't true at all. For all I know, she was having a great, wonderful, big smile, but I didn't know it because there's a mask. So my mind got busy doing what brains do, just projecting onto the unknown and deciding what's what without having any way of verifying. So what Jesus is talking about here is that this isn't just a decision that you make, oh, you know what, I forgive her, it's fine, I'll go give my gift at the altar, I don't need to talk. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. 
because we're exchanging the difference that's divided us for the person from whom we feel divided. And that's the critical thing here. You know, that, that's funny about the masks in the store. I actually had, and this actually was one of the impetuses for this sermon today, I had a scary experience of how my brain projects. I mean, it turned out fine, but it was scary at the time. Uh, about four weeks ago, I was driving over here to Piedmont on the Bay Bridge. And we were in one of those things where we were going from many lanes to fewer lanes. And I was in my, my car, and this fellow here in a truck was coming, and we were doing one of those things where I'll go, no, you go, oh, I'll go, no, you go, all right. Well, finally, with a roar of his engine, he ducked in front of me just when I was about to go, and he almost clipped my bumper. And I felt the usual, ugh, you know, you didn't need to do that. And then, as he did it, he was lifting a finger. Oh, man. My blood boiled. And it was interesting to follow, the part of me that was able to follow anything, it wasn't just boiling away, right? Not only did I feel angry, I felt beleaguered. The whole past 15 months of feeling weary and feeling tired and trying to do your best, I just thought, thanks, buddy. Of course your day is more important than mine. You go, you do you, and I'll just, you know, sit behind here, and I'm sure you've got better things. Oh, I was thinking the worst things possible. And then I saw a little opening there on the side, and I gunned my own car. He still had the finger up, right? And I gunned, I mean, this is dangerous. Don't do this, you know? <laughs> I gunned the car. Next to him, I was going to give him a super dirty look, right? One of those New York City dirty looks that we perfected when we were kids. And the finger was his thumb. He'd been holding up his thumb the whole time. Thanks for letting me in. Whew. You know, I let my blood pressure come down. Unfortunately, from my body's point of view, because my body doesn't know the difference, right? Our bodies think, whoa, it's a war up there, right? So they just react and they do their thing. From my body's perspective, it was just one more little war I was fighting. One more way I was feeling isolated from this guy and from every other human being. But it was all because my brain was projecting. So that's one of the first things we do when we get connected with somebody is we verify, what if we don't have any disagreement at all? And then the second thing Jesus says is he emphasizes the immediacy of it. Did you catch all that? Don't do your gift first. Put your gift down. Go talk to your sister. Go talk to your brother. Talk to your adversary on the way. Settle it while you're walking. Do it now. Otherwise, you end up in prison. Now, you may think, well, I mean, that's nice biblical overstatement, right? I'm not going to end up going to prison just for being ticked off at somebody. Are you sure? Have you ever known somebody? I already know the answer is yes. Have you ever known anybody who's nursed a grievance for years, held a grudge? It's consumed them. You know, I've had a few, my own self. You know, they feel that resentment bubbling up. Do you know what resentment comes from? The Latin root for resentment is resentment. It's from a Latin root, sentir, to feel. It means that you don't get to feel it just once, that anger. You feel it over and over and over. You think you've got it figured out and it falls right off the shelf and drops into your lap like a red-hot coal. That's what resentment is. It's anger that you never got to process and feel the first time. You never got to settle. You never got to reconcile. You never got to do what Jesus said. 
So now you just feel it over and over and over, sometimes for years. Talk about being in prison. And Jesus is right. That's a debt you'll never be able to fully repay. So don't fester. Don't sit on it. That's his advice, right? Make it personal. Find out whether you've actually got a misunderstanding and make it immediate. Do it now. Do it now while things are cool, while things are still fresh. Work it out, right? Think of me with the guy with the truck, right? Wrong finger. (laughs) How many human problems could be solved if we did those two things? Figure it out right away and decide whether or not you've got even the right difficulty in mind. Well, what if we do have differences, though? Those are for when we, we can really resolve differences and, you know, reconcile them together. But there are times, of course, we know this, when we legitimately have differences, differences of opinion, differences of belief, of thought, of practice. So the context for, for Paul's letter is that Paul was addressing the early church, and the early church in Rome was made up of people of all kinds of different backgrounds. Some people may have been Jews who were, following, who were converted to Christianity, were following the Old Testament dietary laws, plus some other laws at the time. Other people may not have come from that background, and they didn't have any of that kind of association, nor any of that practice, and they thought, hey, it's all free, I can do whatever I want, right? We're all Christians together. And what's important to know, as always with these things, is that both sides had plenty of biblical arguments for why their position was correct. It's always that way, by the way. So they had a fight, right? And Paul is addressing that issue. And it's important to see what Paul says, but it's also important to see what he doesn't say. So one thing he doesn't say in this case is this is not a disquisition he's making about vegetarianism and meat-eating. You'll see in some uh, translations it's it's meat versus vegetables. Paul says clearly it doesn't really matter. If it's clean, ritually clean to you, then it's clean. If it's unclean to you, then it's unclean. So he dispenses with that. He's not telling people what to do. He's also not, and this is important, he's not saying, you know, it's important to lighten up. It's important to be wishy-washy about things. You know, it's all, don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff. He's not saying that. He's not saying you shouldn't have strongly held opinions. And I think it's easy. I grew up in a church. I'm a little church kid. I think it's easy for those of us who grew up in churches to think, oh, you you know, go along to get along, and we should not have strongly felt opinions, and everybody should sort of be nice and all that kind of thing. Except that the Bible never says that right? Jesus says elsewhere, he says, you're the salt of the earth. And if salt has lost its flavor, it's good for nothing. And he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Be salty. Don't be flavorless and bland, right? And if you don't know what you're doing, go ahead and make a mistake sometimes with your practices and your beliefs. It's okay, We're a community. We'll uphold you. That's what Paul says. We uphold one another. There are a number of people in this room here and online who are members of my choir, and they will tell you that whenever we're singing a new piece of music in the choir room, if we get to a part where it's totally new and kind of difficult, the temptation for all musicians, including professionals, is to suddenly sort of mumble to get kind of quiet. Maybe no one will hear me, right? I can't even hear myself. Must be okay. And at that moment, the choir will say, I will boom out and I'll say, sin and sin boldly. boldly. That's not sing, that's sin. Even more fun than singing. 
S-I-N, sin and sin boldly. That's a, that's a technical theological term for letter rip, right? I didn't invent it, Martin Luther did. The idea here is that, look, if, if you're being so quiet and milk toast and kind of a little church mouse that you don't even know what you're doing, well, then we can't correct each other, whether it's a piece of music or whether it's something in the community that we have a difference about. We can't even know what we think in that case. So don't be like that. That's what Paul is saying. In fact, he says, hold your, your opinions and your beliefs firm. Years ago, <clears throat> I went to a restaurant in central France, in Vézelay, a fantastic basilica town. If you've ever been there, you know exactly where I'm talking. And there's a Michelin three-star restaurant there. And if you know restaurants, stuff like that, three stars in Michelin is about the highest you can get. And it's a super fancy experience, right? This is the kind of thing where it's a lot of money. And you have waiters assigned to your table. You know, the moment you think, oh, I think my wine glass is getting empty, whoop, it's full. It's one of those things, right? It's just a fantastic experience. My dad had given the money to me and a friend, so it was great. Once-in-a-lifetime experience. And it was interesting. The clientele they had there was not only Europeans and also some some Asian uh, customers. Everybody's very rich in a place like this who were eating there, but also a fair number of Americans, like me and my friend. This was the era about 25 years ago. Remember when everybody in Europe still smoked? Remember what that was like? Everybody. Remember you'd come home in your hotel and your shirt would, you know, that kind of thing. So if you went to a restaurant like this and you paid all that money, you anticipated at the end of your nice meal, you wanted to have a cigarette or a cigar and you'd paid a lot of money. Hey, that's what you expected. Except that if you were one of the Americans who increasingly were the non-smokers, it's all changed now. You expected the same but reverse. You expected, I'm paying all this money. I'm not going to want to sit and smell that guy's stogie over there after I've just eaten this fantastic meal. I don't want that. So if you're the restaurant manager, you have a real pickle on your hand here, right? How do you keep everybody happy when they have beliefs and differences that apparently can't be bridged? So I always remember what the restaurant chose to do, because it's a great example of French Gallic logic, which I find completely impenetrable at times. They put on the table a little embossed card in many languages with gold lettering. And the embossed card said, uh, regarding the smoking of cigars and cigarettes, the management politely requests that both smokers and non-smokers alike will respect the preferences of each other. So my friend turned to me and said, so are people going to smoke or not? And I said, I don't know, have some pate. They're not being clear here, right? It's easy to do that kind of thing when we feel like we're in the presence of differences that can't be bridged. Just sort of soft pedal everything. Don't do that. Otherwise, nobody knows what you actually do feel. All of the things that brought you here, all of the things that shaped me, that shaped you, the triumphs, the joys, the failures, the good decisions, the bad decisions, the in-between decisions, they all make up who you are. And they've carved a miracle of a human being out of you. And yet, we're all here. We're not here because of our differences. We're here because of decisions. And because of a vision that binds us together in spite of differences. So again, as Jesus did it, it's exchanging the difference for the person from whom we feel 
divided. So I'm not telling you anything here that you don't know, right? And in fact, I'll tell you this. I can tell these guys this. I have a pet peeve about sermons. Here's one of my, <laughs> says the guy in the pulpit. A pet peeve I have about sermons is when sermons say, go out and be good. I mean, don't all sermons boil down to that, right? I mean, we church musicians laugh about that. We ask the ministers, what are the scriptures? Don't tell me. Be good, right? Okay, be good, love God. So I don't want to give you an inspiring thought, like, oh, let's be bridging the differences. Of course we should, right? Let's bridge the gap with each other. Let's exchange the person for the conflict. All of that is good advice, but if you're like me, you sit and you hear an inspiring thought, they're worth about a dime. I feel good for about three hours after one of our really great preachers here preaches an inspiring thought, and then three hours later I'm on the highway, some idiot cuts me off, and I'm right back to being my usual snarling self. So I don't get much out of inspiring thoughts. But the good news is that Paul isn't talking about an inspiring thought. He's talking about a whole practice a whole way of practicing. You practice a vision. And you don't wait around for the world to do it first. Right? It's easy to do that. You know, hey, that sounds good, Steve. Well, you know, when people start treating each other like that, you tell me and I'll sign up too. I get it. I'm tired these days too, right? It's, it's been a heck of a ride lately. But all the things we're talking about, they don't happen out there first. Everybody here in this room knows this, right? Sitting around and waiting for the world to change first, that's like looking at yourself in the bathroom mirror and waiting for the reflection to make the first move. Doesn't work that way. You're going to have to make the first move. I'm going to have to make the first move. And probably the second and the third and the fourth. And one piece of good news is that others will be doing that for me when I falter because they are exchanging the differences for the person. You know, I call it a practice, and I'll, I'll bring it to a close here. I'm a professional musician, and I teach music. I've taught some of your kids. I've taught some of you. Music and learning an instrument is an interesting metaphor for life because like all things you have to learn, it's got a unique combination of not yet and already accomplished. Right? So when a kid, how many of you have had, maybe you've had kids who have had to learn an instrument, maybe for school? Hands up. How many kids you've had? Yeah. That's a hell of an experience, isn't it? And I'm not talking about the nice sounding instruments like flute. I'm talking about the horrible ones like trumpet, right? Or violin. I love violin. I love trumpet. You know, you know what it's like to hear a kid or a grown-up struggling away to learn an instrument, right? It's, it's really taxing for everybody involved for a long time. And one of the things that I've been fascinated about all my life is that that shouldn't work. Why does anybody stay with a musical instrument? You're not getting any good feedback. You sound horrible. And yet, you keep with it. Yet, you keep with it. And what I've learned over the years is because you keep with it, because somewhere in that musician's mind, there's not, all, there's not only the not yet. I haven't yet learned the D major scale. I haven't yet learned how to play in tune. There's also the already accomplished, the already finished. And that's what draws and inspires you at the same time. God's vision is the same way. 
Yes, there's the not yet. Yeah, community's full of the not yet moments. Nah, not yet. Still fragmented. But there's also the already accomplished. And I'm not telling you about that the first time. Nobody is. God planted it in your heart. From the day you were knit together in your mama's womb, that hunger for the way things not just should be, but in a way they already are. They're accomplished. God put that there, and God binds us and calls us in unity through that. You know, I've always thought that the three most important words in Christianity are from uh, a letter of John. God is love. And I don't just take that to mean the Hallmark card way. Well, God's lovely, and love is like God, and all that. No. I actually think, as over the years, I've taken it to be radical. God is love. Equal sign, love. And I'll go farther than that. I also think that when we are loving and give that love to others, exchange the person for the difference, for the conflict, when we give that love, and I'm about to say a heresy here, I think we are God in some way. That may bother the theologians, but it doesn't bother God. God asks you to participate, to be those, those hands and feet, to be that for the world and to give that. Those are the three most important words. But the other ones are the ones, and I hadn't even thought about it, but then uh, Dr. Shipset said them, right? At the end of the Bible in Revelation, God says, Behold, I make all things new again. Just like practicing that D major scale. Oop, made a mistake. Go right back. Just like learning to play that trumpet. Oop, go right back. Just like trying to forge the community we all want and we feel in our being and we don't know. Oh, go right back. Keep doing it. It's a practice day in, day out, knowing that God is with us. So if you've been feeling totally fatigued and shagged out by pandemics and politics and foreign policy, yay. Remember, behold, I make all things new again. If you're tired of COVID and you feel isolated and you feel alone and you feel angry sometimes, behold, I make all things new again. It starts with us. Hmm. Let's pray. Good Lord God, you've been with us since before our birth, through our birth, down through our lives. You'll be with us down through our very death and beyond death. And through all of it, we feel your call to unity, to the work you give us, to knit together the fragments of the world into the object of art, the object of beauty that you placed in our hearts. Help us when our spirits flag, when we feel tired or weary or just ticked off. Help us to exchange the conflict, the difference for the person made in your image. And help us to know it's not a once-for-all thing. It's a practice. And help us to know that with every step we take, in that practice, just like learning how to play in tune. We get a little bit better each time. 
Bless us this week as we go into our lives. Help us to carry the meaning and the message and the love behind it to your people in this world. Amen.